improvement with Tim the Toolman Taylor. Uh, he would have these moments in the show where he would do something really manly and he would go, oh, 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 oh. Um, one of the fun things about spending several weeks telling David's stories, the stories of the shepherd boy and that would become a king, is that along the way there's a number of really fun stories that, that make you want to go, oh, 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 oh. And today we're talking about David's friends. His friends are often described as his mighty men or his, his mighty warriors, uh, and they do really manly stuff. Um, and as we talk about friendships, in the context of David, who was a shepherd warrior king, his friendships that drive him towards success are naturally going to be uh, guys that do really bulky stuff. But as we think about what it means to have friends that will help us to, to get the outcomes that God desires for our lives and that we desire for our lives, um, it's not that we need bulky warrior friends, but that our friendships, the people that we spend the most time with, help us to become the people uh, like them. They influence us. And so if I were to ask you who your closest and best friend was that you've ever had, uh, who would you say? If you just call to mind in your, in your own thoughts, the best friend you've ever had. Is it someone that's currently in your life? Uh, someone from your childhood? Maybe it's your spouse or college roommate. Maybe it's a parent or a child. Uh, think about how your life would be different if that person had never been in your life. How would it be different? if you were to give up or lose your best friend ever. Imagine that, that you can think of the ways that they influence you and the ways that your life would, would be forever changed without that person in your life. Would your life be better or worse? Maybe they got you into trouble. Maybe they got you out of trouble. Different friends affect our, uh, our behavior in different ways. Are there ways they influenced you? Are there ways they changed your life for better or for worse? How has your life been impacted? And what about you? Are you the kind of person who is someone else's best friend in their life's story? That, that you know that there's several people who can say, my life was forever changed because of my relationship with, with me? That, that the influence that I had on several people who were very, very close that that if they were asked this question, they might call me to mind. And they might think about how their life would be better or worse as a result of my relationship with them. They might think about uh, how I got them into or out of trouble as a result of, of my relationship with them. See, friendships are, are like that. And when we evaluate how we've been impacted in the past about the people that have been the closest to us, it also helps us to think about the people who are in our lives now who are in our lives affecting us and influencing us. As humans, we are constantly influenced and affected by the people that we are around the most. We are socially contagious creatures. This is just part of the reality of how we are made. The people around us influence our behavior. They influence our attitudes. They influence the outcomes and results of our lives. Uh, they influence what you've been doing, how you've been thinking, what, the way that you talk, uh, all these different ways. And some of us are, are more uh, influenceable by others than others. 
Um, I happen to have the personality type that, that tends to chameleon very strongly the people I'm around the most. If I binge watch a TV show, I will start to, in my own head, think like and sometimes out loud talk like the most dominant character on that TV show in ways that make me be very cautious about what TV shows I binge watch because I start to take on their mannerisms. Um, and so I, I just kind of know that I have that, that, that I'm prone to that and I'm cautious about it. But all of us have that to some level. All of us have that to some extent. Uh, there's a motivational speaker named Jim Rohn. Uh, Jim Rohn is someone who has all kinds of great quotes that are out there. Some of his great quotes, and, and these are just kind of for fun, are, are things like, if you really want to do something, you'll find a way. If you don't, you'll find an excuse. That's pretty good wisdom, isn't it? Uh, here's one of his others. This one I think I'm going to start using with some regularity. If you don't like how things are, change it. You aren't a tree. I'm going to start telling people all the time, when they complain about something that they wish was different in the world, I'm just going to just give them this wisdom. I'm going to be like, are you a tree? <laughs> no, why? Change it. Change it. That's good wisdom. But here's the one we're going to focus on more today is this one that you may have seen before. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Boy, that's, that makes you kind of think, doesn't it? If you think about the five people you spend the most time with and you accept the premise that, they, that, that we are socially contagious to one another, so that if the people you hang around with are people who excel in life, you're more likely to excel in life. If you have people who, who you surround yourself with who are lazy, you're more likely to become, on average, lazier. If you hang out with people who the stuff that comes out of their mouth is filth all the time, guess what you're more likely to do? Not pronounce great wise things like Jim Rohn. You become like the five people you spend the most time with. And this isn't just some kind of a, a thing. There's research to back this up. Uh, a social scientist named Dr. David McClellan at Harvard University did a study. And what he found in that study is that the people you associate with the most determine as much as 95% of your success or failure in life. 95%. Now, I want to be a little bit careful here and, and not say, uh, so you should hang out with the, the rich, cool kids all the time, because some of the most brilliant people in the world are people who have struggled and overcome uh, failure. They're people who have lived in the pit and have pulled themselves through that, through their own work and the surrounding themselves with other people. So, so be aware that character comes in all kinds of surprising packages. And if you surround yourselves with people of character, you're more likely to become a person of character. If you surround yourselves with immoral people, guess where you're probably headed? And so who you choose to spend your time with and to surround yourself with matters. It will change you. This statistic that your success or failure can, can be influenced up to 95% of the time your success or failure uh, is good, great news if you've got good, great friends. But it's pretty lousy news if you've got lousy friends or if you're in a work environment that surrounds you 
uh, with people that are, are negative influences in your life. Uh, you need to be aware that the, the people you surround yourself with are one of the biggest influences in your life and the direction that you're headed and where you're going. It can change uh, because the conversations you have with them dominate your attention and the input of your ears. And the thoughts that they have will often become the thoughts that you begin to think. And the behaviors that they demonstrate will become the behaviors that you begin to demonstrate and model in your own life. The reality is that you may find that the dream in your heart may be bigger than the environment that you're living in and the people that fill it. If that's the case, you should probably change something, and you can. Do you know why? You're not a tree. You're not a tree. And so you can change your environment and change the people that you've got in your environment. Now, does that mean that you may need to quit a job because there's so many people there that are bad for your, your morality, your thoughts, your words, your, who you are? Maybe. But does it mean that if you're getting those negative inputs at work that you need to add positive inputs on the phone on the way home? Yeah. You need to find relationships that can pour into you and mentor to you and you can mentor into them? Absolutely. But you may have to do the work of finding those people, but you can because you're not a tree. So that's the good news. David in his life demonstrates this and lives this out in incredible ways. Today I want to look at the lives of some of the men and the great adventures of some of the men that David surrounded himself with in his adult life, in his time in the military, in his time that he was the political ruler, the king over Israel. In the beginning of 1 Samuel 18, this is shortly after David had killed Goliath, it tells us that after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. He loved him as himself, and from that day Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing, and he gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. The gifts that often accompany friendship. On a number of occasions in the coming years, Saul is going to try to kill David. And he's going to kill him because he realizes that David is likely to become the next king of Israel in Saul's place. And what that means is that Saul's son, Jonathan, will never be king. If it's not for David, Jonathan is the royal heir to the throne. But David has been promised by God that he'll be the next king. And in spite of this... Jonathan knows that the only thing that's going to keep him from being king after his dad is this guy who happens to be his best friend, and he values that relationship more than the throne. And so over and over again, as his dad tries to kill David, Jonathan intercedes. And at times he talks Saul out of his murderous desires, and at times he just warns David, it's a, it's a hiding day. It's a hiding day. You're going to have to get out of here. But that relationship saves David's life over and over again. That friendship is life-saving for David. But I want you to see a little bit of the kind of guy that Jonathan is. Uh, in 1 Samuel 14 is a story uh, about one of Jonathan's great feats. Uh, at this time, the, the Israelites and the Philistines are lined up for battle. 
And, and here is what Jonathan does. Jonathan says to his young armor bearer, he says, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Uh, all of Israel is slowly gathering the numbers of men that they need to stand up to the Philippines. And while they're trying to gather numbers, Jonathan says, uh, numbers don't matter. God's on our side. That's all that matters. If God gives us a sign that he's with us today, we'll go whoop some of these guys. And if he doesn't, we'll just kind of go back to where we were waiting for more men. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. So Jonathan said, well, come on then. We'll cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Okay, so here's... Here's the setup here. Jonathan and his armor bearer are at the bottom of a cliff, and the Philistines are at the top, which is the advantageous place to be. And so Jonathan says, if we go up to these Philistines, and they say, we would like to come down to you to fight you on your terms, then we'll just, that means that God's not going to give it to us. If we go out there and they say, why don't you climb this cliff with your weapons and at the end of this, this adventurous climb, we'll fight you on our turf, which is obviously what they're going to say. Jonathan says, then it means the Lord's given them to us and we'll go fight them. All right, let's see what happens. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. Well, there you have it. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet and his armor bearer right behind him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. They got work done. In the aftermath of this, uh, God is going to send an earthquake that sends panic into the Philistine camp, and they get confused and start fighting each other, and they flee, and Israel just chases behind them, destroying them as they go. It becomes a huge rout all because Jonathan and his armor bearer were willing to climb the cliff and fight these men. That act of faith and courage turned the entire battle uh, into a fight that's about to happen into a fight that just got won by the underdog. That's the kind of man that Jonathan was. And he wasn't unique in this. David surrounded himself with people that were like this. Uh, over in 2 Samuel chapter 23, and this is really now at the end of David's life, there's the story about some of the things that his mighty men have done. David's mighty warriors. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Joseph Bashebeth, a Tachamanite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Let me read that again. 
I mean, not the first part with the names, because no one wants to do that twice. But this guy was chief of the three, and he raised his spear against 800 men who he killed over a month or two in one encounter. This is Samson-level stuff. And this guy's just one of the three. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gather at Pasdaman for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. But Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar to fight with him, to stand by him. No just to strip the dead that he had already defeated. When it says his hand froze to the blade, it's not talking about snow froze. Later today, if you go out and lick a pole, your tongue will freeze to that pole. This is talking about how he clung to his sword for so long, he could not physically open his hand because he had been in battle for so long. They ordered the retreat. We're losing. It's going bad. Get out of here. And the army left him, and he said, I'm not done yet. He said, I don't think the odds are against me because they're still me and my God, and these guys are going to lose today. And eventually the army said, hey, we think the odds are good. Everyone's dead. Let's go get the stuff. This is one of the three. Next to him was Shema, son of Agi, the Herahite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. During the harvest time, three of the thirty chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephraim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Like John mentioned earlier, this is not a command. This is an instruction. David would never consider telling his men, Hey, would you go fight through the Philistine battle lines to get me about 12 ounces of cool water? That would be great. He wouldn't do that. But his mere mentioning of his desire for a drink of water from that well sent his men going, hey, let's show him how devoted we are. Let's show him how we will do anything to meet his needs. We'll do anything to meet even his, his whims. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives and David would not drink it? Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors." I used to really like imagining this particular story happening because I would imagine that they had like a 12-ounce styrofoam cup and they like dipped it in the well and that one of them was like, okay, we've got to fight our way back, but don't spill anything. 
And that vision was really fun to me of, of him like fighting off all these Philistines while being like, not spilling, not spilling. Um, it, I'm sure he had like a, a canteen, right? A wineskin of some kind. Uh, so he probably just had it slung on his back and he took it to David. But it's this remarkable story, just for a drink of water, that David wasn't really asking for they did this. Doesn't that tell you that these warriors, if David said, jump, they said, how high? If David said, I want you to go into a battle that you're going to lose, they would say, that's great, we're ready to go. If he said, I need you to protect me no matter what's going on in my life, they were going to do it. If he says, man, I want to drink water that's behind that army, they said, we're going to get on the other side of that army. We'll be right back. That's how these friends were for David. That's the loyalty that they had to David. And it wasn't just them. It keeps going. Verse 18, Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was the chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed so that he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander even though he was not included among them. I don't really understand those dynamics that they're like, no, we are the three musketeers. And he's like, well, can I be, I, can I be in the group? And they're like, no, it's, it's just three. You're four, we're three. He's like, well, I've done greater things than you. I'm more famous than you. And it's like, yeah, you can't be part of the three. Uh, you can be our leader. And he's like, okay, I'll settle for that. Uh, it's, it's something there that's going on. But So he becomes the leader of the three, but not of the three. But he's doing these incredible things. And then comes Benaiah, and we're going to talk about Benaiah for a minute. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzil, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. He struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Now, if you're familiar with the details of the story of David, it's no small thing to be in charge of David's bodyguard. Because if there's one thing that's true for almost David's entire adult life, it's that everyone wants to kill him. Whether it's Saul or whether it's one of David's sons or whether it's someone uh, in, in Saul's family or someone from another tribe or someone that doesn't want him to be reigning anymore, David has death threats and people trying to assassinate him all the time. And so Benaiah is put in charge of David's bodyguard. It's one of the hardest jobs in all of Israel, but he's in charge of it. He also, we, we know a couple of other things about him. We only have a few verses about him, but I think there's much here that lets us know about the kind of character he has, the kind of strength he has. Joab was the leader of Israel's army, uh, but Benaiah would also lead the mercenary group. There was a group of the army that was not uh, Israelite, but it was a group of Cherethites and Pelethites that had pledged their loyalty to David. And, and this mercenary group of foreigners was ruled over by Benaiah. And he would be the one who would often give them commands and lead them into battle and into the field. 
And there's something to be said about someone who can lead a, a foreign force to fight for a, a domestic king. And he was the kind of guy that could do that. His father, Jehoiada, that was mentioned, was a priest. And so that we know Bahiah was of the tribe of Levi. When David was first uh, anointed at Hebron, uh, Jehoiada rallied 3,700 men to come and support David in his anointing and his becoming king. And so in many ways in David's reign, Benaiah and his family were there from the very beginning. We read that he killed the two Moabite men, their greatest warriors, but he also kills this seven-and-a-half-foot Egyptian giant. And when he goes up to fight this giant, this is echoing in many ways the David and Goliath battle where Goliath has all the weaponry and David's got a sling. Benaiah goes into the fight against the giant with a club, um, which is, is, as far as I know, historically and in military history, a big stick. And he's going up against an Egyptian who has uh, one of these massive spears and everything that would accompany a warrior uh, of that size and coming out of Egypt. And, and Benaiah goes up with the stick, beats him, takes his spear, and kills him with his own spear. And Tim the Toolman Taylor at this point goes, ho, 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 ho. Right? These guys are doing incredible things. But, but on the list of incredible things, the, the lion in the snowy pit thing is, is just wild. This is a guy that sees a pit with a lion in it, a 500-pound wild cat that is experienced in eating meat of things that used to be alive and no longer are. And Benaiah looks into the pit on a snowy day, like today perhaps, and today, I'm not going to do an adventurous thing like go to Walmart because of the snow. Benaiah, on a snowy day, looks into the pit and says, it's a good day to fight a lion. That lion, it, from the story, does not appear to be threatening him or anybody else. But Benaiah is like, I, I think I want to get that lion. And he ignores the fact that this, this lion has five times better eyesight, can run 35 miles an hour, has more strength, and Benaiah says, I, I think the odds are in my favor. On a snowy day, I'm going to climb down into his domain and kill him. And he does. Because David surrounded himself that people would look at the odds. And David's men do this all the time. They look at the odds that are against them, and they look at the God who is for them, and they say, man, there's a lot more of you than there is of me, but you're in trouble. You're in trouble. It's going to be a bad day for you. And they would go into the fight. We are logistics people so often. We're people that so often look at the odds that are against us and say, man, that looks unwise. I can't, I can't step out in faith into this battle. I can't step out into faith into this fight because what's against me is too much. There's not enough of me to do the task that's in front of me. I need to go home. Uh, it's too snowy. I need to go home. It's too scary. I need to go home. That problem is bigger than my solution. But David surrounded himself with people that over and over and over again said, God's with us. The odds are always in our favor. And they went into all kinds of fights where we would think that they were underdogs, but they never did because they knew who was behind them and who was fighting with them. 
And because they were David's friends, it allowed David to excel in so many ways in his reign over Israel. Benaiah eventually, uh, when David at the end of his life said, it's going to be my son Solomon that reigns on my throne when I die and can no longer sit on it. Uh, one of his other sons wanted to be crowned instead. Benaiah, who had been with him and his, fa- his family had been with David from the beginning of his anointing, said, David, I'm going to be with you even after your death. And Benaiah stayed loyal to David's son even in David's absence and defended him and would become the general of Solomon's army. Why? Because he was a person of faith. He was a person of loyalty. He was a leader of of men from his country or any other. He was a man who would fight a lion in a pit on a snowy day without worrying about the odds that were against him. And these were the men that David surrounds himself over and over again. If you go through the list in chapter 23, it lists the names of the 30, and it gets to the last one, and we'll get to this next week, but uh, the last one is, and Uriah the Hittite, which we know from another story, don't we? We're going to talk next week about how David's darkest moment comes from the time that he has an affair with, uh, with Bathsheba, who is married to Uriah the Hittite. And he does it while his mighty men are off at war fighting the Philistines, and he's off alone in his bedroom getting into trouble. And isn't that how it often is? It's when we get into a season of life where our friends are over there and our friends are somewhere else and we're not surrounded by the people who make us better, the people who encourage us, the people who hold us accountable, the people who, who come into our lives and say, hey, you're better than that. But it's when David is not with his friends and they're off at war and he's playing at home that he gets in trouble. I think it's so true for us. Uh, The last couple of years have broken so many of our practices and habits of friendship and one anotherness. And we've got to rebuild them. Because if we're just going to be home alone, we're going to get in a lot of trouble. We need our friendships. We need our relationships. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ to, to be people that we can confess our sins to our struggles to before they even become sins. We need the accountability that comes from good friendships. We need the the fun and the stuff of friendships that keeps you from having the idle hands and idle minds that get you into all the trouble you ought not be in. We need each other. And we know it. We crave it. Man, so many of us struggle to take the first steps back into friendships, back into community, back into conversation, back into coffee visits, and back into one another's homes. We need each other. So if you've been listening to this sermon and you're like, man, he's celebrating a lot of murderous warrior dudes, you're right. Because the Bible does that. That was the world that they were living in. But, but, I'm not telling you that you need violent, murderous warrior bros, okay? You probably don't. Um, I don't know how many of you are like, if you list your top five problems that you have in your life, uh, you probably could only have two of them solved by a personal Samson, okay? I, I don't know, maybe if all of your problems have names, you could, but I would suggest other solutions. It's not the warrior bros part of this sermon that matters the most. 
One of my favorite groups of friends from history uh, is a group that called their little collective the Inklings. And they are the farthest you can get from warrior bros. This is a bunch of Oxford nerds who like to get together at a bar called the Eagle and the Child, but they didn't even call it by its name. They like to call it the Baby and the Bird. They had a nickname for their hangout. And they called themselves the Inklings. It was a group of writers that included Owen Barfield, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, his son Christopher Tolkien, some of the greatest writers of, uh, of fiction and fantasy and the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Uh, you have uh, the mere Christianity and, and all of these incredible books that come out of it. C.S. Lewis is one of the greatest apologists of Christianity. An apologist doesn't mean you apologize for Christianity. It means you argue that it's true and that it's right and God is good and you should follow him. It's one of the greatest and most prolific writers of books that called people to a life of incredible faith. And these guys would meet together periodically at this little bar outside of Oxford, and they would get together and they would spend time reading their rough drafts to each other. And they would make fun of each other's bad stuff. And they would encourage each other for their good stuff. And they would brainstorm ideas. And each of them, as they brought new ideas and 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 criticisms and encouragements to the other's work improved what they were writing. Collectively, this group put out some of the best literature that tells us about who God is and argues about, about why people should believe in the 1900s. C.S. Lewis did a number of, of radio addresses. I mean, he was during the, the war, World War II. He wasn't out being the warrior bro on the, on the battlefield. He was on the radio encouraging people and calling them to a life of faith and a life of resilience and, and a willingness to stand up against evil in the world. And he did that because he had a community of people that would come around him and help sharpen him to be able to bless the whole world through that crisis. They knew they needed each other. It's easier to write on, on your own because you just get to put all your words down, but it's better when you do it with people that sharpen what you're doing. And they understood this, and they would get together and became better thinkers and writers because of the friendship, and the world is a better place because of those friendships. We need the relationships of the people that God's surrounding us with. Because when you have good friends, you become a better person. When you have lousy friends, you become a lousier person. And so if you need uh, to get to a place that you realize that the dream that God's putting in your heart is bigger than the environment of friends that you have around you, it's time to quit being a tree and change something. So much of David's power came from his friendships. If it weren't for his friendships with those men, he would have died before he ever became king. If it wasn't for his friendships with those men, he would have never realized how much his people were willing to sacrifice for him out of their love and devotion for him. If it weren't for those people, he would have had obstacles to his success that he could have never overcome. He would have been a failure as a king if it were not for the friendships of these men that surrounded him. So you need to ask yourself, do you have friends that would sacrifice for you? Do you have friends that remove the obstacles to your success? Or do you have friends that only become obstacles to your success? Do you have friends that are the kind of people you want to become? And are you the kind of friend that helps your friends become who they want to become?
God gives us many, many gifts. He saves us from our sins. He sets us free from death. He gives us many gifts. He gives us the spirit that dwells within us so that even if we don't have friends, we're never alone. We have his presence dwelling in us. He gives us many gifts. But one of the best friends, the gifts he ever gives us is a friend that makes us better. Invest in your friendships this week. Find someone that's not a friend and grow them in that direction. Find people that will help you become the people you want to become and surround yourself with their presence in your life. It made all the difference for David, and it'll make all the difference for you. If you need to come forward this morning, you can do so while we stand.